Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Tonight we'll finish up chapter 2, and as we finish chapter 2, we come to a subject that again has plagued the church for really a couple of millennia. It was probably a difficulty for those in the first century church, and you can kind of see that in the way that James writes the remainder of the chapter here that we call chapter 2, because he begins this subject matter that actually was kind of the focal point, if you will, Uh, of the Reformation some 500 years ago. And that is, what is the role of faith and works? Because the Jewish people, remember James is Jewish, he's Jesus' half-brother, and that as we're studying through Hebrews on Sunday, the Jewish people had come to understand that there was almost a direct correlation that in essence your faith was the lesser important part, your works were far more important. In other words, in essence, you kind of worked your way to heaven. And from that, world religions, and some of them, Christian world religions, were founded specifically Catholicism. That there was a heavy emphasis on works. And so here in this particular portion of chapter 2, we find these two things in their tension. What is the role of works in the life of a believer? And the reason it's important is most of us sitting here tonight believe that we've been saved by grace through faith, that promise there of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. We can't boast about it. God gave us a gift. There's nothing to boast about. Amen? We're saved by faith. But does that mean that our lives then can be lived as we please? Does that mean that our lives should not really exemplify the great grace wherein we've been saved? And so James is going to attack that tonight uh, with a double-barreled assault. And so let's get ready. And the role of faith and works. Verse 14, we begin in chapter 2 and we'll finish the chapter through verse 26. For what does it profit... My brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, and here comes the problem statement for many, can his faith save him? You see, because Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says we're actually saved by faith. Faith saves you. And so it appears there's a little bit of a conflict there. But is that what James intended? Is that what the Holy Spirit's actually saying? And I think we'll come to the right conclusion tonight that, no, it's not that Faith needs to be cast aside that you're saved by works. But what happens to us as we are believers, what should happen in our lives? And so he gives us an example. And so verse 15 goes on, If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but do not give them the things which are needed for the body, What does it profit? And thus also, so you can see it is absolutely an example of what James is speaking by the Holy Spirit. Thus also faith by itself. If it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. What does that really mean? Where does this fit into our soteriology? That's a theologic term, and it simply is the doctrine of salvation. Are we saved by faith plus works? Are we saved by faith alone? Is it mostly works, but kind of, sort of faith? How do they mesh together? What is it that the Bible actually teaches about this very important subject? And so it begins, in essence, in verse 14, with a false claim 
about what faith actually is. And so you might phrase it another way. Can we just simply divorce faith from works and just go on living however we want with no abiding fruit? We're saved by grace. Can we just then be whatever we want to be? And praise God, thank you for the gift. Is that what the Bible teaches? Doesn't appear so. What does it profit? Can faith? Save him. The question is, what type of faith is in view? Because you have a couple of types of different faith in view in your life. You have saving faith. That's the faith that's a gift from God that comes to you, through which is imputed to you God's own righteousness. Christ's righteousness is given to you as a gift. There's saving faith. But there's also God's working faith in your life. It has nothing to do with saving you. But it is still based in who you are in Christ. And that was the problem for the church then. It's the problem for the church now. Because if you lean too hard on the saving faith side of this, then the working faith side of it suffers. And in fact, may be non-existent. And in fact may tie into exactly what we just went through as we journey through Hebrews 6. Are you actually a believer if there's no evidence in your life by the fruit that is borne out, if there's no works in your life, if there's nothing that happened, did anything happen? You see, as Christians, we're supposed to have renewed minds, transformed hearts. We're supposed to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. Remember what we've already seen. We're not to deceive ourselves. There are things that should happen in our life. And so in essence, what you have here is false false faith comes into question. Some people have actually seen James kind of as a champion here. And in fact, during the Reformation, Martin Luther was not a big fan of James. And in fact, Martin Luther actually wrote a treatise on this particular book and effectively said that it shouldn't be in the canon of Scripture. He, he was so convinced that James had it wrong that you should just toss out the book of James. And in fact, one of the most common phrases of the Reformation, which is just simply when Protestantism uh, kind of triumphed, if you will, over the Catholicism of the day, which went from a doctrine based almost exclusively on works and religion to doctrine based on grace through faith, Martin Luther himself is credited with that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That comes from Martin Luther. And so this German professor of theology, this priest, this author, this composer, this Augustinian monk, this seminal figure in the Reformation, uh, begins to reject the teachings of the Catholic Church, in particular... One of the very most egregious things that were a work, and that was the payment of indulgences to the priests. If you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you needed to take some hard, cold cash and then get prepared to do some other things as well, like take care of the grounds at the abbey, maybe wash the priest's car, do something to show that you were truly repentant. And so the Catholic Church began to sell those things. And actually through the Middle Ages, it was big, big, big business. And in fact, the priests became some of the most wealthy people ever on the earth at the time. And that was through the indulgences of the Catholic Church. So Martin Luther writes what is known as his 95 Thesis. He lists these egregious things that were works that were being done to kind of try and prove that you were saved to the Catholic Church, and he nails them to the church door at Wittenberg. And when he does that, he sets the whole world on fire. Because his battle cry was actually from Romans chapter 1, which is quoted from Habakkuk Habakkuk chapter 2, the just shall live by faith. 
That in essence, if we're justified by faith, that's what God intended. So that justification wherein we've been made right in the eyes of a holy God, the penalty is paid, the price is paid. We've been declared righteous even though we're guilty. Christ is punished for us, so his righteousness is placed in our account and our sins are placed in his account, this wonderful thing. Um, Ultimately, Pope Leo X excommunicates him. He's put on trial at the Diet of Worms, uh, and ultimately you have this man who's now all in favor of this marvelous grace of God. So much so that he ends up calling the book of James a veritable epistle of straw. In other words, it's not worth reading. Why? Well, it pretty plainly says faith without works is dead. There actually are some things that we should be thinking about as to whether we ought to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. And I believe that Martin Luther just simply misunderstood what James was getting at. Being so incensed at the time by what was going on with the Catholic Church and with the Reformation, he just tossed this truth out. And so what James was really getting at, in essence, is this faith that is questioned. You should be able to look at your faith and say, has it actually done anything? Am I different than I was before? Is my heart ostensibly changed? Has there something been something that's happened? And has that something that's happened actually done what the Bible says it should do? Am I actually thinking differently? Am I acting differently? Do I have different cares? Do I have different concerns? Am I kingdom-oriented? Am I earth-oriented? You see, real faith can actually be questioned. We think of faith, very often, many people do, as something that is not tangible. In other words, you can't actually see it. But yet, the author of Hebrews says that it's a substance of things hoped for and yet not seen. So it does have substance, and it is something that there's evidence of. It is the evidence of things not seen. In other words, faith actually does have evidence. What is that evidence? James tells us it's the works of righteousness that flow out of the positional righteousness that we have in Christ. You see, if we're truly God's kids and we're positioned in Christ Jesus, we're truly adopted into the family, then that new family identity ought to be able to be visible in us. It should show up in our lives. Some Christians during the time of Martin Luther went so far as to develop a doctrine known as antinomianism, which is just simply against the law. In other words, they believed that grace was so sufficient that it was all so cheap, and you could just simply do whatever you wanted. The Bible doesn't teach that. It says that if we have this right relationship, then the right relationship should also give us the right relationship with both God and the world that we live in and the people that dwell on it and all of the stuff that we own and consume and the lives that we live should be evidenced by works. Actual things that show people that we are really saved. And so as James really is beginning here in the book of Genesis, what's he actually getting at when you think about this, the way he's purposed this? He puts it to a test, and he's actually alluding to Abraham as he quotes from Genesis chapter 15 here. Why is that important to us? Because if you look at where James is going to go and what he's going to do, you're going to see that not only is this false faith questioned, but we have to consider what it is that he's actually saying. So what's the appraisal? How should we look at our faith? Notice there's a real need here. This isn't an ethereal thing. This isn't a fake thing. This is a real need. This is a real person who does not have the food that they need to survive. 
This is James saying that if you see your brother, your sister in need, if you are really God's child, then you ought to be really concerned about that and then do something about it. Notice destitute of his daily food, her daily food there in verse 15. The background of this is actually the early church. So as you read through the book of Acts, specifically the very early chapters, chapters 2 through 6, when you read through the book of Acts, you're going to find that they actually had a communal living style. That communal living style caused people to sell what they had for the benefit of the whole. I'm not suggesting that we have to do that. But what happened in that particular environment, because it was an agrarian society, wherein they bartered and traded for other necessities of life, uh, there were truly people who had and truly people who very much had not. And in fact, there was no way for people to get that unless they had someone they knew who also had. And so the early church kind of had a very early form of what you still see in Israel today, which is a kibbutz. That would be a, a commune. That's what we would call them. Being a child myself of the 60s, some of you in here can remember that. That was kind of a big deal in the 60s and the 70s. You know, we'll just, we'll do the John Denver thing. We'll blow up the TV and we're going to throw away the paper and move to the country and buy us a farm. That was what a lot of people thought was the answer. Well, the problem is, can I tell you what happens in a kibbutz? You still have rich people and poor people. And if you had traveled today to Israel, one of the things that you'll see is there are some really, really, really nice hotels in a kibbutz. There are some very, very rich people who live in a kibbutz, and there are still people who are out farming, and they're poor who live in a kibbutz. Why? Because the heart of man is wicked and desperately evil, and who can know it? You still have to deal with the internal things in order to get to the external things, and so you may have the right system, but you got the wrong motivation. And so this case, it was tested. There were huge numbers of poor people. So remember, this is the beginning of the church. So you have Judaism, which was loosely approved of by the Roman government. And in fact, Herod, who is an Idumean, half Jew, and half from Edom, so his family history, who ruled the region kind of as a puppet king, um, the Jewish people had a fairly high degree of standing and status, especially in the neighborhood of Jerusalem. So they weren't doing that bad, but once they became Christians, guess what happened? All their Jewish family cut them off. And so now they don't have the food that they need. In fact... Many of them had taken Nazarite vows, as we saw, and those had to be purchased back from the Jewish the hierarchy, specifically the priests, the high priests. And so you had tons of poor people in this fledgling church. And so now you're telling somebody, this is worth it, man. Give your life to Jesus. Pick up your cross. Follow him. And you've got money and your brother doesn't. You're telling him it's okay for you to have, but he's starving to death. You've given your life to the same Christ, but there's something wrong because somehow now you don't actually care about your brother's need. You just care that the church grows. It's a problem that still exists in our world today. One of the things that has been a blight really on Western Christendom at times You can see this throughout the history of the children of Israel. You remember when the children of Israel crossed over uh, the Red Sea? And as they're crossing over, you might remember that they stopped and they were on the side before the Egyptians caught up with them. They're all laying on their faces and they're whining and moaning and groaning. It's like, we're going to die here. They're all thinking about going back. You remember what Moses told them to do? He said, get up off your faces and let's go to work. we got to start walking. Now, why was that a problem of faith? Because the sea hadn't pulled back yet. So they had to put feet to their faith. 
Matter of fact, it wasn't until Moses got to the water that the sea opened. And so they had to apply works to their faith. Their faith, in essence, would have died with them under the hand of the Egyptians had they just laid there and said, well, Lord's going to take care of it. Sometimes people have to be reminded that God has given you a brain. God has given you wisdom. He's given you prudence. He's given you understanding. He's given you resources. He's given you two legs, two arms, lots of fingers and toes so that you can actually do something with what you believe. In that case, there in Exodus 14, Moses actually said, Why are you crying to me? Speak to the children of Israel that they go forward. Not backwards. They were actually going, well, we better go back. You know, maybe Pharaoh won't kill us all. The same is true in the book of Joshua. If you remember, in the story of the Jewish people, once they entered the land, so they've gone through the wilderness wanderings, they've come in the time of conquest, they're in Joshua 7. They've had this incredible victory at Jericho. They get to this little tiny city called Ai. Should have been no big deal. Should have been able to just walk in and take it. And they are getting whooped on. Well, if you remember why, it's because they didn't have faith in God. They had faith in themselves. And so they fell on their face, and Joshua says, get up. Why are you lying on your face? Israel has sinned. We need to get into the battle. Let's go. Again, faith without works is dead. Poverty in our time is sometimes this way. We can sit around and go, well, we don't have this and we don't have that. And we complain, 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 complain. And sometimes God's just telling us, well, you actually need to go get a job. You need to go do something with it. And that's not to be overly simplistic about it, but it is to say, I have actually met with people. Lots of them. Well, you know, I'm waiting for a management position. But your kids aren't eating. Well, you know... I'm going to I'm trusting God. How many job offers you had? Well, you know, it's 10, but none of them were quite as high as I needed. Your children are hungry. Take the crummy job and pray for the good job. Amen. Take the job that's going to put food on the table and then worry about the other things. You see, God is actually requiring of us that we trust him and sometimes trusting him is We aren't quite where you think we are yet. You need to do your part right now. Right now. You see, pious words are actually worse than useless. Sometimes they reveal a cold heart, a heart that isn't actually in tune with God's design and his desire for our life. And so we need to be careful. And please don't take any of this too broadly or too generally. It's not always the case, but very often, God is asking us to do something with what we already have before he gives us anything else. Jesus never failed to help people who were in need, but he did not always give them what they wanted. They didn't necessarily instantaneously have every single one of their heart's desires filled. Very often it was a loaf and a fish. Very often it was just a stilled storm. Sometimes he just gave them opportunity for the next day to be better. But they had to do something. And throughout the Gospels, you can see Jesus telling people who are healed, get up, go show yourself to the priest. That's working faith. Go wash yourself. That's working faith. It's faith that works. There's a conclusion here that we have to consider. It's kind of what you might call the bottom line. And even so, verse 17, faith, if it does not have works, is dead. Notice this, because it's alone. In other words, faith 
and works are two things that need each other. If faith exists without works, then the faith is dead because it's alone. Faith needs an outlet. It needs a place to express itself. This is the way faith works. You see, I could walk around all day and tell you that I have faith. But I can tell you how I'm expressing faith right now. My father-in-law just had two stents put in. He was in cardiac arrest about an hour and a half ago. They decided to put a pacemaker in. He went in cardiac arrest again. I could be freaking out right now, or I could be trusting God and expressing faith and works together by being here. Amen? Be real easy to just go, well, you know, God will take care of the congregation. You know, somebody will come up and teach, I guess, you know. <coughs> Excuse me. I am almost over this cough. So whoever gave it to me, thank you. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And it's interesting because Hebrews, Hebrews and James kind of parallel each other, but Hebrews kind of attacks it a different way. It says, Hebrews kind of warns us against dead works. So you can have dead faith and you can have dead works as well. Because you can do works for the wrong reason. You can have faithless works and you can have workless faith. You understand what I'm saying? It's what the Bible plainly teaches. We just saw that in Hebrews chapter 6. We'll see it again in chapter 9, the book of Hebrews. And so basically he's insisting if you have real faith, if you have real belief, then that real belief behaves as though it has a new master. We say and declare Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? That word, you all know what it means. What does it mean, church? It means master. It means ruler. So if Jesus Christ is Lord and he's master and he's ruler and you have faith in him, he's the master. You're no longer the master. Don't you suppose that the faith that he gave you to believe is also then going to be worked out in your life because he's the new master. It behaves according to a new set of ideals, a new set of goals, a new set of thinking. The renewing of our mind is going on. All of a sudden we have different concerns, amen? You know, it's interesting to me as people grow in their walk with the Lord, how very often they start out, it's just like they're doing really good to not be on crack, okay? Absolutely true, isn't it? The Lord takes away some of those bad habits and takes away some things that are destroying your life, some real genuine sin issues. God works that way initially. And then all of a sudden, this weird thing happens to you. I don't know why, but I think I want to go to Africa and go on a mission trip. I don't know why. I think I, I want to go work at a food pantry. I don't know why, but I think I want to help Feed homeless people. I, I don't really know why. You know why? Because you have a new master. The new master has imparted into your heart a new set of ideals and goals. And all of a sudden, that faith that saved you is saying, Help, I got to get out. I got to go do something. We took care of all the problems. It's time to now go do good with that faith. That's why we put it to work. Amen. So all of a sudden, you're like, man, I want to volunteer at the hospital. I want to take care of some kids. I want to teach Sunday school. I want to do these things. That is evidence that you're actually saved. Real saving faith really works. And it's happy to do it. It gets excited about it. In essence, what James is saying, verse 18, but some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works, verse 18 says, doesn't it? Heavy, isn't it? Doesn't that charge your spirit up a little bit? It should. Because there are some people who claim to be Christians that all they do is say they have faith. They are Christians in name only. 
They said, well, you know, I said the sinner's prayer. You know, I, I, I went forward. By the way, those two things are absolutely wonderful. And they are a step in the right direction. But if your salvation ends there, you might want to say to yourself, why is my faith dead? Is it genuine? Is it real? Why is it not working? Because in Acts chapter 10, we're told that the early church went about doing good works. They actually found things to do. You know, one of the reasons that we build wells in Liberia, one of the reasons we build churches in Nigeria, one of the reasons we build churches in Uganda, one of the reasons we build churches in El Salvador, one of the reasons we have built orphanages all over Latin America, the reason we do that is not simply to take care of the orphans, it's to open the door for the good news of the gospel, but it begins with feeding orphans and providing fresh water and making sure that people have food to eat. You see, those good works are works of faith. You know why I know that? Because nobody ever pays us back for the wells. Nobody ever says, you know, well, here's the money that it costs to build the church, nor would we accept it if they gave it to us. We'd tell them, go build another church. But the fact of the matter is we don't do it for recognition, and we don't do it for return. We do it for the King of kings and for the Lord of lords. Amen? That is faith doing what faith really should do, which is we tithe back to the world. We give back to the world around us a portion of the good things that God has given us. That is faith. You see, because lack of faith would say, let's build a bigger barn. That's what Solomon did, right? Well, you know, I got too many cattle. I got too many horses. I got too many chariots. I need bigger barns. We don't want bigger barns. We want stretched out tent stakes. We want the gospel to go to the uttermost parts of the world. That requires that you give it away. Say, look, that's for you. The Lord gave that to you. You see, so what James is really getting at here is the person who says they have faith should have something tangible to back it up. There should be something tangible to back it up. You should be able to look at your life and go, This is completely different than what it was before. I am no longer like I used to be. And here's the result of it. James had the kind of faith that could move mountains. We're going to see that as he addresses all kinds of things like the tongue and prayer and these wonderful teachings that we have through the rest of James. But notice the application of faith here. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God. Everybody in here believe there's one God? One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. There's one God. His name is Yahweh. He's the God of the Old Testament. He's the God that came to Abraham. He's the God that came to Moses. There's one God. He's triune. He's one God. Notice what James says next. This is crazy stuff. Here it is. You do well. But even demons believe, and oh, by the way, they actually do something about it. They tremble. They are so convinced that Jesus is God, that he is who he says he is, that they are in fear for their eternal destiny. They tremble. That is crazy to me. Because you know what that tells me? That the Christian who doesn't have works in their life is worse than demonic. Because demons actually express a form of works in trembling. It's like, I'm afraid of what's going to happen because I know that dude is real. But some Christians aren't afraid of what's going to happen. And so their faith isn't real. They just live there like, well, you know, I got, I got fire insurance. Go to heaven. 
They kind of bebop around and do whatever they want to do. Faith without works is, say it with me, dead. It's dead. It's really dead. This word translated tremble here means to bristle, to shudder, to shiver. They believe so much that Jesus is who he says he is that they actually are deathly afraid. That is not an intellectual assent. That's not knowledge that someone gave them, said this is the facts about it. It is in a gut level exactly how they believe. It produces action. James then moves to that disputed faith. You can see it displayed. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? You want to see how it works? God said it. The question becomes, do you actually believe it? The wording that's used here drives us to a core of our thinking. If you want to know something, what's the best way to know it? It's experiential, isn't it? That's why when someone graduates from college... And this is not a knock on college, by the way. You need that too. But when you graduate from college, you know nothing about business. I mean literally, quite literally, nothing. Why? It's head knowledge. You've never had your money invested in it. It's all thought. It's principles. It's valuable, but it's very different when it's your millions that are invested It's very different when they're your employees that are going to get you sued and thrown in jail. It's very different when it's your truck that crashes into someone and kills someone. It's very different when you experience a master's of business administration or whether you just get one. Do you understand the difference? The same is true for medicine, isn't it? You can practice all day long. You can do your clinicals. You can do your labs. You can have some idea how that works. But when that patient is your patient and that patient is going to live or die based on the knowledge that you have being put into practice in the surgical procedure that you yourself are going to do, that's very different, isn't it? And the same is true for faith. And you could go on and on with disciplines of science or any other thing that you would want to talk about. If you look at that from that perspective, it becomes very clear here what James is saying. This is not just about you knowing something. This is you being so convinced that it is real in your life that you will act on it. It's an internal motivation. I got no choice but to crack open that chest and give that heart cardiac massage. No choice. You know when you're sitting there and you don't know what to do and you've never done it before, you're like, man, where do I make this cut? How do I spread that? You know, what do I do? Do I saw through the sternum there and crack that chest open? If you're grossed out by this stuff, I'm sorry, but that's what you have to discern as a doctor. You, You have to literally think, I'm going to put this person's heart in my hands. There's no time to waste. No one else to make the decision for me. What does your gut tell you to do? Give me the saw. In the very same way, James is saying, that's how faith and works are together in the life of a believer. It is so real that when the opportunity for your faith to be put to a test and do something comes, that you jump into action. You don't stop and go, well, gee, what page was that on in the manual? You know, I wish I'd have studied a little harder in clinicals because, you know, it's just like I don't know what to do right now. No, it's your faith is so enlivened by the fact that you now wanted to do something that you jump in with both feet. It's an impulsive realization that that faith, if you do not express it in works, is dead. It's impulse. 
It's as if it's an involuntary reaction to the faith that was placed in you when you got saved. Boom. Happens. Notice the appeal to our faith. And so James is basically going to prove his case now in verses 21 to 25. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now stop before you get too far down the wrong road here. Not saying he was saved by works alone. But what happened when Abraham took Isaac to Mount Moriah? What was going on there? It wasn't an ethereal, well, you know, there's this guy, and he told me a story. It's about this other kid, and this other kid, and they had some wood, and blah, you know, and it wasn't a story. It was totally real, wasn't it? You know the story. He gets up early in the morning. He's collecting firewood. He gets two servants to go with him. He tells Isaac, we're, we're going up to make, where's the sacrifice, Dad. The Lord will provide himself a sacrifice, son. Can you imagine when the knife is is ready to be plunged into his chest? Wasn't he justified by the, wasn't the justification of the actual faith that he had, which was real, the fact that he would do everything he was asked to do? And this wasn't the first time in Abraham's life that he acted exactly the same way. Do you see that faith, verse 22, is working together with his works? And by his works, faith was made perfect. And it doesn't mean perfect as in it, wasn't, it was damaged before and now it's better. It means that the true character of it, it's much the same principle as refined or refining. When you burn dross off of any precious metal, we'll just use gold as an example, One of the ways that you know that it is sufficiently brought to temperature is when you scrape off the dross, you can see yourself as a reflection in the surface of the precious metal. It is so pure, there's nothing left to do. And so it is with your faith. That's what's in view here. Your faith when it is tried, your faith when it is tested, your faith when it is boiled, it's put under pressure, your faith when the impurities are burnt out of your life is made perfect. All of a sudden your faith is so real that all you can see is Jesus in it. That's it. And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God. And it was accounted or it was accredited to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Notice it wasn't he was just called obedient. He wasn't just called holy. He wasn't just called righteous. That that faith working out in Abraham's life caused him to be called by God himself a friend. That's what friends do. Jesus actually addresses that, by the way, in John's Gospel. You are my friends indeed if you do as I have commanded. If you live your life in a way that's well-pleasing to the Father. In verse 24, you see then a man that was justified by his works. And again, two types of justification happens in your life. One, positionally justified. Placed in Christ Jesus, never to be moved. Your sin debt erased. But an ongoing outflow of that is your sanctification. That if you're truly justified, then you're going to be looking as though you were justified more and more and more because your life is going to be sanctified more and more and more and more until you get home to heaven. In other words, the justification for that declaration is the works. You understand? The justification for the declaration is the works. The justification for the declaration that you are free indeed, the penalty of your sins is wiped out. The justification of the declaration is the works. You can see it. I can tell that person, (laughs) excuse me, is a believer. Not by faith only, 
doesn't mean he's saved or more saved by the works. It simply means that you can tell there has been a justification for what has happened. And it's visible. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out the other way? (laughs) Man. Thank you for bearing with me while I'm getting well here. I feel great. I just sound terrible. And so as you look at this appeal to faith, you can see it in both cases here. First, you have the case of Abraham, Hebrew from Ur of Chaldees. The other case, you have a harlot. You have one who is from Hebrew stock. You have one that's a Gentile from Jericho. Abraham's life was a series of very specific surrenders, wasn't it? Think about it. He had to leave his own father. Leave his old way of life. He had to leave the well-watered plains of Jordan. Remember, he was given the opportunity to have the best land. He gave that away. It was a series of surrenders. Like, Abraham, this is your stuff, but what are you going to do with it? You can always tell how deep someone's faith is by how tightly they grip to the things of this world. You can always tell how deep someone's faith is by how tightly they cling to the things of this world. Because this world is not your home. Your life in Christ is always a series of surrenders. It's always picking up crosses. It's always following him. It's always death to self. It's always serving. It's always loving others, even when they're unlovable. Abraham had to give up Hagar, had to give up Ishmael. He loved Ishmael, but he had to give him up. And finally, he was called to give up Isaac. You see the surrenders? It's just one right after another. It's like God gives, and the Lord says, don't hang too tightly on that. Don't be trusting in all of your sheep and your cattle. And the well-watered plains of the Jordan, I'm calling you up to Shechem. I'm going to bring you out of the valley where there's plenty of water, and I'm going to put you up on a mountaintop where you're going to need to dig a well. You've got to work hard. As he gets there, his final test, his own son, the one that was promised, You see this great truth. Is Isaac mine or yours? Is Lee mine or yours? I have passed through this crucible a number of times in our lives. Jeff, is Brandon mine or yours? Is that house mine or yours? Are those resources in your bank? Are those mine or yours? Who do they belong to, Jeff? It's a series of surrenders. You see, because what you worship is your God. And if you worship money, if you worship marriage, And again, you should love your wife as Christ loved the church. You should honor your husband. You should honor your parents that it might be well that you live long on this earth. There's all kinds of biblical admonitions to care well for the things that God's entrusted to you in stewardship. But they can become God. And so whether it's your bank account or whether it's your babies, our children are just on loan from the Lord. They're not actually his, or they're not actually ours, excuse me, they're his. And so be careful, because the true sign of faith is surrender. 
It's like, that's right, Lord, that's yours. My children are yours. My life is yours. Do with it as you please. These beautiful bookends of faith and works. As you see in the life of Abraham, that faith mixed with works produced an incredible trust in the Lord. Now, it wasn't always perfect, was it? Abraham kind of had some issues. So did Sarah. So before we worship them, you know, too much, it's good to remember that they weren't perfect in their example, but you can say at the end of Abraham's life, he trusted God. And he trusted him enough to do exactly what God told him to do. He purchases a field. He he builds this altar at Shechem. He gives up the well-watered plains. He goes back to being a shepherd. That's why Hebrews records this. Chapter 11, verse 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, when he was tested, when it came time to show exactly what kind of faith he had, his faith worked. Offered up Isaac. That he had had received the promises offered up by his only begotten son of whom was said that in Isaac thy seed shall be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up. He so believed that his faith had to have legs, that his faith had to have works, that he believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. That's works. That's you saying, God, if you ask it, I'll do it. Kind of puts, you know, going on a two-week mission trip uh, in a little different category, doesn't it? Or, you know, I, I, you know the Lord just put on my heart, I'm going to tithe 11%. I'm going to give a little more than the Lord would desire for me. I just, I just want to trust him. Imagine you're standing over your, your own son. I've actually had that opportunity, not for me to take his life, but for the Lord to take his life. I've stood over my son. I've watched the line go flat. You really find out what you're made out of in those moments. Are you going to walk with him or are you going to run? Are you going to cling? Are you going to say yes? Is your faith going to have works? You see, these beautiful bookends belong together. That's why it was accounted unto Abraham as righteousness. What an incredible testimony Abraham had. Can you imagine he and Isaac having conversations later? I've always thought about this. and I, it, It's going to be so awesome to talk to them when we get to heaven. It's like, what were you thinking? You know, how did you actually explain to him, well, we've got a donkey and there's sticks on it and I have a knife, and he's looking around like, there's no sheep, there's no goat, there's no, we don't even have a turtle dove. Dad, what's up here? Can you imagine what they saw looking eye to eye? Remember, Abraham by now is very aged. You don't think Isaac couldn't have taken him down? Think about it. 
There's faith on Isaac's part. He, he could have easily overpowered this aged old man. But he didn't. That's a legacy of faith. Dad, if God told you to do it, I've watched your life. I've watched you live your life in faith. And every time God has asked you to do something, you've done it. And if he's asking you to do this, I'm in. What a legacy of faith, church. Oh, that we would have that legacy. That our lives would be so endued with the power of the Holy Spirit to be doers of the word. To have faith that gets off of its knees and gets onto its feet and runs for the king. And that faith produced in a great friendship. You see, the closer you draw near to God, the closer he draws to you. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. That's what friends do. why some of the bonds that you make in the military are so lifelong and lasting. When you've been through hell together, it's easy to go through heaven together. When you've been in a foxhole surrounded by enemies, it's really easy to walk through life as friends. And really, Rahab, who's the other example here, is much the same. Here's a woman who has no reason other than the fact that she loves the Lord. She's watched in this village. She's literally this poor soul that's a pagan prostitute who's without Christ, without hope. She's under the sentence of death. But she's so enamored by her faith that she says, I I believe. And she shields these spies as the military police of Jericho ravage her home and turn it upside down. As she shelters them, she would have been able to remember the destruction brought by the Canaanite kings that are in that story of Sihon and Og as they brought fear on the the Jewish people. She pleaded that her family would be spared. How did her faith have works? She did the unthinkable. She did what would get her killed. No one would have blamed her for running away. The people in this town had taken advantage of her. They had used her. She was trash to them. But she trusted God. And so she did what the Lord asked her to do. Hebrews makes her life an example as well. And while Jericho fell, Rahab's house remained standing. That's faith that works. But there's more. She marries Salmon, who's one of the two spies, She gives birth to Boaz, who's in the lineage of Jesus. That's what faith does. Faith takes you from an outcast and makes you a child of the king. But when you have that kind of faith, that faith is going to do something. It can't be restrained. It can't be held back. And so James ends with a final contention and we close with this. And as for the body without the spirit is dead. Remember there's a spirit, that place where you meet with God. Without it, what does your life really matter? You get 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years on this planet, the last of which will probably not be the best of which. You go through struggles and trials, and then the end comes, and nothing? 
And so the body without the spirit is dead, and so faith without works is also dead. There's an illusion for you. There's an illustration for you. James kind of, and it's a little gross when you think about it, but we kind of sort of have practices in our Western culture that you can kind of see this. There's a dead body. And of course, he's talking about belief. He's talking about your spirit. But you know, when you dress up a corpse, when you take someone and you embalm them and stick them inside of a coffin, and you put their best clothes on, you put their best jewelry on, they're still dead. There's no life in that box. They're dead. Matter of fact, the Bible actually says it's a tent. You just dressed up a tent. An earthly tent, a shell. So important is this that it ends with this kind of a contention. You can talk to that person. You can command them to get up, but they're not moving. Why? They have no life. There's no possibility for life in that corpse. It doesn't have any capacity to do anything. You could scribble Ichabod across it because the glory's departed. That's not actually even that person. It's the cellular material that composed their body while they were walking around on this earth, but the real them is not even there. That is the analogy that James leaves us with. And so, faith without works is dead. It's like a corpse. Doesn't matter how much of that type of faith you have. Doesn't matter what it looks like. You can dress it up, you can talk to it, you can talk about it, you can do all kinds of things. Faith without works is a corpse. It's a dead shell that has no value whatsoever. It's a representation of who you used to be. It's a physical manifestation for some to look at and go, well, I think that's who that was. But the Bible says that's not them. The Spirit of God is not in that kind of faith. The Spirit of God is in the faith that says, rise up and walk, and it rises up and walks. It actually still moves, it lives, it breathes. Faith without works is dead also. I pray that we have the type of faith that moves mountains, that will endure any sacrifice asked, that will give up whatever we're asked to turn over, that will endeavor to do good, even to those who despitefully use us, curse us, that will do good when asked to return something, we give everything and then some. Because the opposite is also true. Real faith really works. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Amen. Thanks for enduring my coughing. And hopefully one of these days I'll be totally well. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for the times that you have tested my faith, our faith, Connie and I's faith, even tonight as just this whole day has been about whether Lee's going to make it another day. And God, I, I'm just so grateful that uh, you have spared his life once again. It was a test. And Lord, you proved yourself faithful again. And so, Lord, we just thank you. And we pray for those that are struggling tonight, Lord, to express their faith in action. 
Would you boost their faith? As you prayed for the disciples, Lord, you prayed for more faith for them. You didn't pray for freedom for persecution. You didn't pray that they would have lives of ease. You prayed that they would have more faith. And if they had that faith that you prayed for them for, then that faith would be busy. And so, Lord, give us busy faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.